We're going to be in Luke chapter 24 this morning, Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, and we will continue on, as I said last week, with the, the resurrection, and we'll be doing this for a couple more weeks, because the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not a, a simple thing that happened quickly and then just kind of went away. But Jesus was seen by many, many witnesses in many different places in many different instances as having resurrected from the dead, that there might be no doubt that what these few women first attested to was, in fact, the case. And so we're going to pick up here this morning in Luke chapter 24 with an interesting situation, an interesting occasion. So much of what we've been talking about over the past weeks has been recorded in some or all of the Gospels for us to consider but this morning, only Luke records this particular and very personal story. It's on the same day of resurrection as last week when we talked about the women going to the tomb early in the morning and then coming back to Jerusalem, the inner city, and, and proclaiming to the disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so we're going to see that this is the same day, later in the day, in a different place, and only recorded in Luke. And we have two disciples going down the Emmaus Road, a road that leads out of Jerusalem seven miles to the east to a village called Emmaus. They are sad, they are confused, they are disheartened as to what has happened, and they don't understand what has happened because they loved Jesus, and they loved him for a period of time, and they, like others, were seeking the coming of the kingdom of God. But it did not turn out at all how they expected or in the way that they thought that it would. But what we're going to see here this morning, and I hope you don't miss, is a deeply personal account of the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is personal. He comes to you and I in a personal way. And we see him here taking a detour, if you will, from the day of all the things that he could do on the day of his resurrection from the dead he comes to a road and walks by two discouraged believers that they might encounter him in a way that transforms their lives and is recorded for us in Scripture. So please, let's stand to honor the Lord as we read his word in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened and while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Clopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So verse 14, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. We've got two friends, two disciples, two followers of Christ going down the road on a seven mile walk. Walking and talking with a friend is a good thing. I hope you get a chance to do that. But the best parts of walking and talking with a friend is spiritual conversation with a friend. We see here in this passage something of the goodness of spiritual conversation between Christian friends. I hope that you know this joy, this joy of what it means to talk to another person, another believer about your faith in Christ and their faith in Christ and what you have learned from the scriptures and what they have learned from the scriptures and your common experience of seeking after Christ. We all know how often our conversations with people have absolutely no substance to them. They're just empty conversations that kind of pass the time or awkward people at the coffee pot together or whatever it may be. When you walk away from that conversation, there's nothing really that's gained from that conversation, nothing that deepened your friendship, nothing that brought you together. And so often the conversations that we have with people are, are way worse than just empty. They're often bitter. They're often angry, they're often focused towards undermining or undercutting another person or complaining about the things of this world or of this life. And when you go through life with conversations, interpersonal conversations that are marked by this, it takes us further away from the Lord, not closer to the Lord. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your heart is full of football, you know what you're going to talk about all the time? Football. If your heart is full of politics, you know what you're going to talk about all the time? Politics. If your heart is full of money and planning your retirement, you know what you're going to talk about all the time? Money and retirement. If your heart is full of Jesus and his word, you know what you're going to talk about all the time? Jesus and his word. And so our hearts, these two fellows' hearts were full of the things of the Lord. They had been following after Christ hard for a long time. They were a part of this inner circle of disciples. We see this from what we find later in the passage. And they're discussing how nothing had turned out the way they'd wanted it, and, but they were talking about Jesus and their common experience with Jesus. What a joy it is to have a heart full of experience with Jesus and a common friend to talk about these things with. I pray that you have friends that are Christian friends. I thank God for the Christian friends that I have here in this church, but I also want to remind you that my greatest Christian friend in this life 
is my dear wife. She is my best friend in this journey of this life. She's the one that I talk more about with Jesus than anybody else. And so I want you, if you are a married person, to think first about whether you and your spouse have friend conversations and you go walk the, walk the neighborhood road at night or go and take walks on the, on the trail or whatever it is. What are you talking about? Do you talk about Jesus or is it always about something else? I encourage you to get a picture of friendly conversation related to Christ here and how important it is because as they are struggling and as they are speaking, what happens? Jesus comes up next to them. What an interesting thing. Jesus comes up to them to help them in this conversation and to further this conversation and to bring them in to understanding what that they are talking about. It says in verse 15, Jesus himself drew near. I want you to see this morning and understand that Christianity is not a system of rules or of following a certain series of maxims that you live by. But Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is the opportunity to go from being separated from God to being forgiven of your sins and being in fellowship with God. And that the same personal nearness that these people enjoyed with Christ Jesus, we can enjoy today and in a way that is even greater because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the opportunity to enter into a personal relationship with personal interaction and personal tenderness and care of Jesus Christ towards you. And that as you walk through and go down the road of life, that Jesus will come alongside you and walk with you and help you and strengthen you in the things that you deal with. And so in verse 16, we see something that is interesting. It's something that's going to work its way out throughout this entire passage. And so bear with me as we, as we see it work its way out. It says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It's not that Jesus looked different, but they were unable to recognize him because of something that God was doing. And this may seem mysterious to us, but I'm going to venture this morning that this happens to all of us in various ways and it has happened to us in various times in our life. That the Lord God does not come to us and just drop everything that he has for us on us in a moment of time, but that he progressively works in our lives to both reveal himself and to make things dramatic. Because what we have going on here this morning is some drama. And I really like it. It's really interesting. He could have just come alongside them and just, just laid it all out on the road and then, then gone. But what happens is something prolonged happens here, something that works in their hearts, something that is so astonishing that they have to, at the end of this story, run in the dark all the way back to Jerusalem to say what had happened to them. And I hope that there are times in your life where you feel the nearness of the Lord and that the, the dramatic nature of Jesus revealing himself to you and coming near to you and working in your heart was a story that you did not want to forget. And you maybe even wrote down in your journal so that you could tell somebody later exactly what God had done in your life. And that's what we see happening here. Because we see in verse 16 that he prevents them from recognizing him. But in verse 31, it says very specifically that he opens their eyes that they might recognize who he is. And so there's a full progression. And we need to see that in this progression, who is doing the pursuing? 
Jesus is the one that comes alongside of them. He is the one that's seeking them out. He is the one that's working in them. But in this idea of our hearts and our eyes and our soul being blinded at one time, opened at another, uh, theologian John Calvin writes this, very interesting. The proper discrimination between truth and falsehood, therefore, does not arise from the keen discernment of our own mind, but comes to us from the Spirit of the Lord. It is chiefly in the contemplation of heavenly things that our stupidity is discovered. For we not only do we imagine false appearances to be true, but we turn the clear light into darkness. And I believe that this has been a part of every experience of every Christian in this room. That there was a time where we were exposed to the things of God repeatedly, perhaps by the same person, like your parent, your mother, or your father, or teacher, over and over. And it wasn't that they said something different at the time that you finally came to salvation, but it was at that moment that God's Spirit worked in your heart in a way that is similar to here, to open your heart. And your soul had burned before that. You were seeking these things. You were longing about these things. But there's something about God's Spirit working in our hearts that opens the door that we might understand these things. So, For some of us, even the same person may have said this, but they were only seen as good and beautiful when the Lord opened our eyes and our heart. And there was the work of the Holy Spirit to bring regeneration to our soul. And in God's time, according to God's grace, and in the seeking of Jesus as he comes alongside them. And so he asked them a question. Because none of this is mechanical. We often break these things down into systematized categories that seem very mechanical and very uh, in a certain order that we have a hard time with, but that's not what we see here. What we see here is something that's very progressive, very natural, and occurring in a way that is redemptive. And so Jesus comes alongside them and he asks them a natural conversational question. Hey, what are you guys talking about? And, uh, and they say, they stop, actually. It says they, they come to a standstill because they're shocked that he doesn't know who, what is going on as he's been listening to their conversation. And they look sad when they look at Jesus. And this man, this disciple named Cleopas says, are you the only person in town that doesn't know what's going on here? Are you the only person that hasn't heard about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ? And so Jesus probes further. He, he, he draws them out. He doesn't just say, yes, I'm Jesus, and here, here it all is. He, he draws it out of them further. He says, what things? Tell, tell me about this. I'd love to hear about what is on your heart. And part of this, I think, is important going back to what we were talking about, spiritual conversation. If you're anything like me, part of how you learn is by actually talking things through. That as you talk about things and as you say things, then you start to put the pieces together. And I don't know what it is about our minds and about uh, how it is that talking about things helps us to grasp those things and to put them into order in our mind. But this is what happens. And we have further the the blessing of spiritual conversation. What a blessing it is to talk together with Christian friends, but what an even greater blessing to talk with your friends with Jesus and enter into a spiritual conversation with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus brings them in to this conversation by cultivating a conversation, by having them talk about the things of the Lord. And so in verses 19 through 24, we have a, a summary of the events of, as the way they see it about Jesus. And they say that, well, Jesus was a prophet. And that's, at this point, that's about all they understand about Jesus. They're not clear exactly 
who he was or exactly what he was doing, but they know, as they say, that he was mighty in deed and he was mighty in word. And they know that their chief priests and their rulers, even though he was innocent, they brought him to be put to death. And they, mis, they misjudged him and they falsely accused him. But they say in verse 21, they express their hope, the hope that many had had, the, the hope that he would be the redeemer of Israel, that he would bring back the nation from their enslaved state and that he would usher in the kingdom of God. They didn't know exactly what that meant, but they know that their hopes have been absolutely crushed. And what they hoped for is now disillusionment. And what they were longing for has not come to pass. But verse 22 is powerful and very important. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. So what we talked about yesterday, these men were a part of the group that when they rushed back and said, Jesus has risen from the dead, they heard the words of the angel. He is not here, he has risen. And they brought those words back and they told those words to the disciples of which these two apparently were part of that. But what did they not do that the women did? They clearly did not believe. Because if they had believed, then they would not be sad. The, the attitude of sadness does not go along with believing that Jesus has just risen from the dead. So something about their heart is unbelieving at this point in time. And we know that because Jesus also rebukes them. In verse 25, he says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus does this often with his disciples. O ye of little faith, like why are you not believing what I am saying? Why are you not believing what you are seeing in front of him, in front of you? And so he presses them and he rebukes them and reproves them. He calls them foolish. He calls them slow of heart. You know, I don't want to be slow of heart. I want to be a person that, that picks things up quickly when Jesus puts them down. And I pray that that would increase in my life, that I would not test and test and wonder and test, but the longer I go, when I hear it from the Lord, that I will be willing to say, yes, Lord, and obey quickly. But it's important to see here what happens. Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is one of these verses that Paul talks about the usefulness of Scripture. All scriptures, God breathe and useful for these various things. And two of the things that Paul says that the scriptures are useful for is for reproof and for correction. Very interesting. So these fellows need reproof and they need correcting because they don't fully understand who Jesus is or what he was doing and they're off track in their faith. And so what does Jesus use to reprove and correct them? He uses the scriptures. And that's what we're going to see here this morning. He takes them back to the scriptures to reprove and to correct them. And so anytime that we find ourselves in the place of these men walking down the road, well, we are off track and we are out of kilter and we've lost our hope and we're walking in sadness, we need to go back to the scriptures and we need to be reproved, be corrected, be instructed as to who God is and what he is doing in Christ Jesus. Because what Jesus says first in verse 26 is that these things were necessary. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And that is a powerful word. It's a word that we spent a lot of time dwelling on some weeks back in the Garden of Gethsemane. This idea of the crucifixion of Christ being much more than inspiring, much more than instructive, it was necessary for our redemption. That Jesus could not 
our salvation could not be accomplished apart from the cross of Christ. We saw this worked out in depth in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus in agony praying, Lord, Father, is there any other way that this salvation can be accomplished? Is there any other way that this cup of suffering can be removed from me? And he says, but not my will, but yours be done. And we see this rotation three times where eventually Jesus comes to the place where no, there is no other way that salvation can be accomplished other than through the cross. It was necessary. These disciples were confused at this point in time as to what the purposes of God were in Jesus on the cross. But Jesus also connects it to future glory. These things were necessary that he might enter into his glory. So I'm going to read to us a little bit from Philippians chapter 2, which I think is the most compact passage that walks us straight through the incarnation, humility, suffering of the cross into the glory of Christ, and how it was absolutely necessary for Christ to go through these things, not that he might remain humbled, but that he might be exalted into glory. And so Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful passage. He humbles himself in the incarnation. He humbles himself to not only just to become a human being and to take on the form of a man, but to, to be a servant, to be the one that even washes feet. He is the lowest of servants. He takes the lowest place, emptying himself out, becoming obedient even to the point of death, but not any death, the humiliating death of the death upon the cross. And so he goes all the way to this extent because it was necessary that he be the substitution for our sin, that he take upon himself the justice of God, that we might receive his righteousness. And in this, he is raised to life and exalted to glory. And it is by the cross of Jesus that our salvation is obtained. And so Jesus is instructing these people, these two disciples, Clopas and the person who was with him, as to why this was necessary. And to do this, he takes them to the scriptures. And so he takes them to the Old Testament and says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. Two things about this. The first, I want you to not miss that it says the scriptures, okay? The Old Testament of God is the Old Testament, is the scripture of God. The New Testament didn't exist at that point in time. So all the scripture that did exist, Jesus himself recognizes it as the scriptures. How often do you spend time in the Old Testament? I just ask you that because a lot of people don't. I understand there are difficult things in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm going to be the first to acknowledge that, but I'm also going to tell you unashamedly that it's the scriptures. It's the word of God. And we find there what Jesus is going to prove out for these disciples that Jesus was the coming Messiah. 
Because what he does next is he takes the Moses and the prophets and how they speak of the necessity of the cross. What is he talking about here? How do you, how do you bring this out of the Old Testament? There's a lot that we said here, but I'll give you at least four basic things. Most centrally, Jesus is the substance of all symbolism in the Old Testament. He is the substance of the symbolism of every sacrifice of sin in the Old Testament. Every lamb that was offered, every ram, every scapegoat was a symbol of something to come. And a symbol is only meaningful if there's actually substance behind that symbol. And so Jesus is the substance of the symbolism of substitutionary atonement in the Old Testament. Every insufficient king that, that ruled over Israel is symbolized or is looking forward to a perfect king that would rule over the people, worthy, righteous, and this is Christ Jesus, the perfect conquering king, one that was always insufficient, always divided. Every time we read through the cycles of the kings in the Old Testament, we're so disappointed with what we find there, so disappointed with the way these people lead, even the best of them, failing in sin. But the nation is always looking for a perfect king, and that king will come to us and has come to us in Christ Jesus, his kingdom inaugurated but not complete. Jesus, the one who would ultimately bring hope and bless all the nations. Jesus, the true and perfect high priest, gracious, sinless, unceasing in his advocacy for our good. Every high priest, every priest in the Old Testament failed the people in one way or another. And my goodness, the, you think of the high priest during this time? I mean, how could, how could they fail more than they failed by having the Messiah come into their midst and they bring him up for judgment and crucifixion? The high priests of their time were the absolute bottom of the barrel. But Jesus Christ, the whole, the whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus Christ as our great high priest and his advocacy for us, his perfection in fulfilling that office. But this was symbolized, uh, the, the imagery of it was set up in the Old Testament and points us toward Christ who is going to perfectly fulfill this role. And so though we're not told here, I have to believe that some aspect of these things are taking up their miles of walking as Jesus himself explains these things to them from the Old Testament. Because whatever school they had grown up in and trying to understand the Old Testament, they had missed these things and they weren't clear of them. And so Jesus is making them clear. Jesus is the center and the sum of the Bible. If you miss Jesus in the Old Testament, and you miss Jesus in the New Testament, then you have missed the purpose of the scriptures. The scriptures are always pointing to Jesus and the cross and the redemption that he has brought to pass through the work of God the Father. To lose sight of Jesus is to lose sight of the person and the purposes of God in the world. And so we want to seek Christ, and we want to seek Christ through seeking the scriptures, through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But they eventually reach the village. This conversation which could go on and on and on and in some ways has been going on for years with the disciples and Jesus. Eventually they reach Emmaus and they reach the end of the conversation. And as they draw near to the village, some more drama from Jesus. Jesus is like, oh yeah, I think I'm going to keep walking. They're like, no, no, you got to stay here with us. This has been too good. This has been the fellowship of this. The joy of this has been too wonderful. And I see this as Jesus doing what he often does. 
which is testing whether, we are, whether our hearts really desire him, whether we really seek after him or not. Do these two really care, or are they going to go right back into their sadness and right back into their unbelief, and are they going to be indifferent towards this time of Jesus walking along with them? But thankfully, these two men are not indifferent towards Jesus. They, they want him to stay. They want this time to keep going on. They want to keep learning about the Messiah in the Old Testament from this mysterious stranger who is walking along the way with him. And so they go in and they sit down for an evening meal, and Jesus takes bread and blesses it and breaks it. And I want to point out to you, as I will every single time we see this in the Bible, because it is the regular pattern of Jesus that when he sits down for a meal, he does what? He prays. He always does this. And so this is not something that we just came up with here in America to pray before our meals. This is something that's modeled for us by Jesus, that as they sit down, something about it reminds us of God has provided this for us. God is at work here. Let's take this moment of being together to offer a prayer of the Lord and ask his blessing upon this meal. And so I would encourage you to not have your prayers before meals just be meaningless repetitions of memorized words or cursory things that don't matter, but Truly, take time regularly to turn your heart towards the Lord as Jesus did. And so it is at this blessing over the meal that when they open their eyes, they are opened to who Jesus is. It says in verse 31 this, And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. That's wild. They open their eyes and they realize This is Jesus that we just saw crucified and buried, and he is here with us, and then he vanishes from them, which is such an interesting thing. The glorified Christ is different. There's all kinds of different things going on with him. But one of the things, if you have interest in digging a little deeper here, which I I find fascinating, is almost the same thing happens back in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 22. In the Old Testament, Jesus, I believe, is spoken of when it speaks of the, the, uh, the angel of the Lord. It has to do with God coming down. They address the angel of the Lord as being divine. I think this is often Jesus coming and visiting people. Because remember, Jesus existed from eternity past. He didn't come to be uh, in the incarnation. But he is visiting with Gideon and calling Gideon to his task. And there's a time where as they share a meal that his eyes are opened to the fact that he is standing in the presence of the Lord and this angel of the Lord vanishes from before him. And he has the same exact sense as these men do, that they have just been in the presence of the Lord. And so they say something that is so interesting, and we're going to camp out on a little bit this morning because it's radically important. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? That's a very subjective description. Didn't our hearts burn within us? They were kept from fully recognizing who he was. But as they were with Jesus and as the scriptures were open to them, there was a progressive drawing near and a progressive understanding of who Jesus was that affected their hearts emotionally. There was something that was exciting, something that was like a burning of the soul in hearing the Lord expound the scriptures to them. And I believe that we cannot ever have both an awareness and a nearness to God and have this not affect us. And what I mean by this is there were people during Jesus' ministry that were physically near to Jesus 
but they were not aware and did not believe that it was Christ. And so their hearts were not affected by it. But any time that we are, by the blessing of God and the, uh, the seeking of our souls, aware of who Jesus is, and he is very near to us, it always results in this. That there, we cannot be af- not affected by being near to the Lord Jesus and aware that he is in our presence and have it not cause our hearts to burn and long for him. And so that's exactly what is happening in this passage. And they are so overwhelmed by this that even though they are seven miles away from Jerusalem, and if the sun hasn't already set, it's close to being set, and there is no way to get back there other than by just running down the road. And we know that in that time, it was dangerous to be out on these open roads at night, but it did not matter. Like, they were going to take, they didn't have any flashlights, they didn't know what, they took a torch or something like that, and they ran all the way back to Jerusalem. We have got to tell the disciples what just happened here. So what was a seven-mile mosey turns into, we've got to get back and tell them what has happened. And in verse 34, I tell them, the Lord has risen indeed. And they bear witness. The burning of our hearts from becoming aware of who Jesus Christ is and being near to him and believing in him will affect your heart. It will change the affections of your heart to where you long to tell other people about Jesus. And in fact, you can't contain it. The conversations that you have with people will be uh, affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you will want to tell them something about Jesus because of how he has affected your life. And so we come to know and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ through the scripture being taught to our hearts by God the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again. We come to know and to believe in the person and work of Jesus. So we, we gain a knowledge of God, and then we believe what is happening there through the person and the, of the person and work of Jesus Christ through the scriptures being taught to our heart by God, the Holy Spirit. So what this means is that we have to balance these two things. There is a, a bringing together, is probably the better way of saying it, of the scriptures and God's spirit. If we seek only the knowledge of the scriptures and we neglect the Holy Spirit in ministering those scriptures to us, which is the doctrine of illumination, that we should be prayerfully asking for exactly what happens here on this road as, the, as Jesus comes alongside them. As we open up the scriptures, we should be praying, God, help me to understand these things. Come alongside me and help me to grasp what I am reading here and believe what I'm reading here. And then the other side of it is if we only seek the Spirit apart from the Scriptures, we will be almost instantaneously misguided because the Scriptures are God's Spirit makes known who He is, His person and work by the Scriptures. So those that seek only the Spirit and neglect the Scriptures are misguided into their own understanding of what they think God is. And so we see here in this passage the normal pattern of the way that the Lord works in our lives to bring the Scriptures and the Spirit together that these things might be made known to our heart, that we might believe them, be radically affected by them, and that it might emotionally impact our heart to where we have a passion for Jesus Christ. I hope that you understand what I'm saying this morning. If what I'm saying this morning makes no sense to you because you say, man, when I read the Bible, it's just dead and dry. That's all I can do to just get through it, but I do it because I feel like I have to do it and somebody told me that I need to do it. 
Or if you feel like you have a great zeal for Christ, but you know that it's being misguided because it's been a long time since you have opened the scriptures and you realize that your zeal is taking you into a place that is not healthy and is not good. Something is wrong on both sides of this. And it's time for you to seek after the pattern that we see here, the scriptures and God's spirit both working. Because here it's Jesus ministering to them, but Jesus is very clear that when I go away, I will send the spirit to fill this role and fill it in an even more beautiful and personal way that the scriptures might be ministered to you. And if the scriptures are dead and dry and cold to you, or perhaps they used to be joyful and passionate and powerful to you in the past, but they are no longer, remember Jesus rebuking one of the early churches saying, you have lost your first love. Return to the love that you used to have for me and you used to have for my word. And pray and ask the Lord to restore this zeal in your heart that you might again have a soul that burns after the Lord. In closing, I, I just this idea of a heart that is on fire for the Lord or burns with zeal for the Lord is important. I think it is not a coincidence that in our day and age, every year out in the middle of the Nevada desert, there is a massive event called the Burning Man. And the Burning Man is the exact opposite of this. It is the setting on fire of the passions of the human heart, all the lusts, all the desires of the sinful human heart giving, given vent in a place that's supposed to be free where there are no laws and there's no, nothing to hold us back from anything. And this started out as a tiny little thing and now is this massive event of people seeking, I believe, some experience that is similar to this but that is apart from the Lord. They think that if they can give full vent to their passions, that they can find some meaningful experience in this life that will last, but it will not. And instead, it destroys us, and it takes us further and further away from the Lord and further hardens our hearts. But we are not like this. What are we seeking? We are seeking a burning of the soul which comes from a nearness to the Lord and to entering into his presence and who shall enter into the presence of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. It's when we come in holiness and seek after the Lord that he might give us an undying, ever-growing passion to know Jesus Christ, to live for him and to tell others about him. I pray that this will be true in your devotion to Christ this morning and as we go forward into this week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you this morning, and we thank you for your personal ministry to us, and we thank you for this, this, re this record this morning of these two disciples going down the road, that they genuinely sought you, they earnestly sought you, but they just could not figure out what was going on, and you are so patient and kind and good to come alongside us, for you to seek us out personally, one-on-one. -on -one. And then to minister the scriptures to us, to help us understand the person and work of Jesus Christ, who you are and how you have worked in the world. And then bringing upon us a sense of your nearness and, and awakening our hearts through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that we might have faith, that we might believe in these things and that it might burn within our hearts the reality that God exists and that he has been near to us, and that we have had some communion with Almighty God. 
And I pray, Father, that you would help us in these things. In the mundane nature of our days, of the the regularity of the work schedule, of all the things that are going on, we pray that you would draw near to us in this way. I pray that you would draw near to each man, woman, and child, each young person in this church this morning, this week, that we would perhaps even go this afternoon and open the scriptures and say, Lord God, draw near to me in this way. Help me to be aware of your presence. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word. And I pray, Father, that as we spend time in your word and in prayer this week, that we would know the personal nature of Jesus Christ, that you would meet us right where we are with the strength and encouragement and hope and conviction and reproof and rebuking that we need from your word that we might follow after you. Lord, help us in these things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.